Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Game Talk Radio. I'm Greg, and I have a lot of stuff I want to talk about today, so I'm just going to jump right into it. And let's see, today is Tuesday morning, so it's a day that ends with a Y. So that means, oh, Nintendo's getting sued again. <laughs> so uh, last week, um, to be fair, this was actually a lawsuit that uh, has been pending since 2013. But Nintendo has been ordered to pay $10 million in a Wii patent lawsuit. So uh, today, a Dallas jury awarded iLife Technologies $10 million in its patent infringement lawsuit against Nintendo. The suit, like I said, started back in 2013, and it alleges that Nintendo used iLife's technology when creating its motion-sensing Wii Remote. So apparently, this technology was designed to detect when elderly individuals fell, and it was also meant to monitor babies for sudden infant death syndrome. So obviously, this company sounds like they're making good products but it's a little strange because what do those two things have to do with the motion sensing that is inside the Wii remote uh originally they wanted 144 million dollars in damages or four dollars for each of the 36 million Wii systems that were sold prior to the lawsuit being filed and then they also threw in of course the age-old uh injunction against nintendo's use of the technology at all so they might even have been like well they have to take it out or you can't have it. Uh, Nintendo, of course, claims they didn't infringe in any patent, and that Nintendo's excuse is that the patent was improperly written, causing it to be invalid. Uh, now, apparently, at the same time that they sued Nintendo, iLife also sued Fitbit and Under Armour that had the same patents that were listed in the Nintendo case. Uh, both, uh, however, both of Fitbit and Under Armour's lawsuits were dismissed. Um, now they were dismissed by the parties themselves, so you could probably guess that there was some sort of out-of-court settlement. And Nintendo, of course, is planning on appealing the ruling as well. But it's really strange. So Nintendo, here's what kind of bothers me about this. Of course, Nintendo gets sued all the time. In fact, they have a wicked long list of patent infringement and lawsuits and issues. Uh, that I can go over here uh, in a bit. Actually, you know, let me just do it right now since I've got it up. So it hasn't even been that long since most of these. Um, back in 2011, there was a patent dispute over its me characters, and apparently the technology that stores your Mii's was infringing on a patented technology for producing and storing police sketch artist data. Uh, now Nintendo won that, uh, but the uh, it was the federal appeals court ruled in their favor upholding a previous decision so the original decision was the nintendo was not in the wrong and then a federal appeals court upheld that decision uh and of course someone from nintendo said they're very pleased with the decision duh uh in uh let's see in 2015 there was a company oh no i'm sorry that was the one so in 2015 that's when they lost the lawsuit so the company was called recognicorp and the federal judge ruled against them uh let's see here uh, last year, uh, I don't know when this article was written, So, uh, but Nintendo has a long history of patents and lawsuits. An appeals court judge overturned a $30 million lawsuit involving a former Sony inventor who claimed Nintendo infringed on his 3D display technology when making the 3DS. The appeals judge sided with Nintendo despite the earlier ruling against Nintendo. So uh, in appeals, Nintendo seems to be doing pretty well. But anyway, that's just a taste of some of the lawsuits we talked about uh, just a couple weeks ago. We talked about how uh, the Switch was being sued for its from from the device that you have, like a tablet, and then you put the two controllers on the side and you control it. So I guess what bothers me the most about this is 
who is Nintendo's patent lawyer? And why are they still employed there? And maybe they aren't. But this just screams to me of a company has an idea. I don't believe that Nintendo ripped these people off. I don't believe that for a second. But this this reminds me of who's not doing their job in their legal department. Somebody's job is to go through all these ideas and to check these patents and to check for all this sort of stuff. And clearly they didn't. So now this goes down my typical rants about Nintendo, which is why how did like this is common sense stuff you think that they wouldn't have a problem doing and i don't know why it always seems to be more that it's um in lawsuits in the u.s now part of that is because the united states is a very litigious country which basically means they're very quick and very big on lawsuits like you you've seen that uh, you know a lot of people talk about that the mcdonald's coffee that you know, was spilled on the lady and she sued. And then you've got basically anything that you feel have been wronged, you've been sued. I made this comment when I talked about doing that go-karting in Tokyo back in April was that you could never do that in the States because there's so much liability there that you'd get just your pants sued off in like a second if anything bad happened. So I don't, I don't know who at Nintendo doesn't understand that you can't, you have to figure these things out. And what what really bothered me about what Nintendo said about this case was that Nintendo's argument is that the, uh, let me find it here just so I get the exact wording. Oh, let's see. I had it here. Uh, okay. So uh, Nintendo said it didn't infringe on the patent and that the patent was improperly written, causing it to be invalid. Well, so they're not, I mean, they are saying that they didn't infringe on the patent, but their their case is, well, the patent was improperly written. So what does that mean? Does that mean that maybe someone didn't sign their name properly or they didn't fill it out in the proper way? That doesn't make it any less of copyright infringement. Now, a court might be able to, you might be able to use that, a lawyer might be able to use that in court as like a way of skirting around the issue. But that doesn't mean that Nintendo didn't do anything wrong. Now, again, I fully believe that Nintendo is an innovative company, and I think they go out looking for innovative things, and they do it. I just think whoever they have that's in charge of uh, checking all of these things is doing an awful job and should be fired uh, because they clearly have no idea what's happening. Everything they seem to release seems to have some sort of patent infringing issue. And now you could argue, though, say with the... Because they they were awarded $10 million dollars in this most recent lawsuit against Nintendo, iLife was. Now, you could argue, though, that Nintendo says, well, if we put this in there, we're going to make more than $10 million. And if they sold 43, excuse me, 36 million Wiis, the amount of money they made was astronomical. And the Wii, as we know, was a financial success, albeit not necessarily a critical success. It was a financial success for the company, which essentially funded the failure that was the Wii U. But the Wii was very successful. So they might look at this lawsuit like that and say, well, we can afford to pay our lawyer to go to patent court and we can afford to pay a $10 million lawsuit, even though that wasn't the original lawsuit, a $10 lawsuit. They could pay all these sort of things because the end game is still a net positive for them. And these are the sort of conversations that a lot of companies have at that level. Like they, I mean, they could say, well, we can't make motion in our Wii remotes because this company has a patented, or they could say, well, we could make it. And if we get sued down the road, if the system's successful, because if you look at this lawsuit, they wanted $4 for each Wii sold. So what if the Wii was a monumental flop sold? What did the Wii U sell? Like 5 million or something like that. I don't know, five or 10, not very many. So say it sold that many, that's one third 
of the amount of damages. So there's always like they, they build that into their understanding. I'm starting to think because normally you would think that someone's just inept, which is starting to become the default I have for Nintendo now when anything goes wrong is just it's just the, the, the ineptitude. But it could a lot of these things are by design and they just say and of and of course it's very different when you have a japanese company making things in the u.s because obviously they didn't get sued in japan so the we wanted to come out there and when they brought it to the states what were they going to do take all that stuff out you know I, I and i don't know enough about patent courts to know if they can use that as a valid argument and say you know this was created in japan it should have no you know just because it's being sold here doesn't mean that it was created here and that the people who created it had no exposure to whatever technology that was you know infringed upon or whatever but i think that so that that's that's the two part you have to decide for yourself is nintendo's patent department and like lawyers just completely inept or is this what they call a strategic business move where they say we can we can absorb the cost of these things as long as we're going to make X amount of money back because of these things. And, and I often, one thing that's a very similar story to something like this would be when the PS3 came out, some of you might remember that there was no rumble in the controllers. They just came out with the six axis controller. So it was a very light controller, no rumble, which personally, I don't really care. Um, I never cared much for rumble. I did care about how the controller felt though. I felt it was too light, it felt kind of cheap, but Nintendo or uh, Sony just came right out and said, you know, oh, well, hey, you know, we, we you know no one really likes Rumble, so we're just taking it out. No big deal. But what had happened was they weren't renewing their license with the company that supplied them with the DualShock Rumble technology. There was some sort of lawsuit going on or something where they had basically just said, you know what, fine, we'll take it out. And they took it out. And that was a fine decision for Sony. They did that across the board. Now, later, they either settled or for whatever reason, they ended up putting it back in. So I don't know if they had what they assumed was enough customer feedback or backlash to say, okay, let's settle the million-dollar deal with the Rumble guys so we can put it back in our controllers. I'm not sure. You know, I, I don't know. And maybe, maybe they looked at it and said, you know, the Wii has Rumble. The Xbox 360 has Rumble. If we don't have Rumble, it looks like we're, we're missing something that the competition has. And you don't want to be in that kind of... Uh, position of weakness i guess when it comes to these sort of things and and i say this a lot uh but perception is reality so a funny thing about that as an example here is when the xbox 360 came out there's a reason why they didn't call it the xbox 2 it was because they were coming out against a system called the playstation 3 and a basic on a, on a basic understanding simple knowledge level someone understands that a 3 is greater than 2 so the playstation 3 would have been argued to be more powerful than an Xbox 2 because it's the third one, not the second one. And and I know you think about this and people who are really into the games, uh, game industry and like understand the terminology, you probably think that's crazy, as do I. But, you know, I deal with a lot of people who play games who aren't uh, on the blogs every day like us and who don't listen to gaming podcasts like you all might not. And they, they, they have these basic understanding of things and that's what it is. Uh, we saw that sort of pop out with the Wii U uh, confusion, which even confused a lot of us in the industry when they first announced it, because it was the Wii U and they never showed the console. They only showed the tablet. So we were all very confused, but the average consumer after five years of release will still come in to my store and say, wait, so the, 
the Wii U is that just like the Wii or and they just they don't they don't know anything about it and that's of course poor marketing sometimes but that's also just because people have a basic understanding like there, there's a way to I, I guess the best way to say is there's a way to manipulate people's thoughts when it comes to that I mean that's what marketing is that's why they use colors like yellow and red uh, for you know si- sale signs and things that catch your eye and you know there's subliminal messaging as a real thing in fact so real that there's laws against it <laughs> so uh, it's really interesting stuff but anyway you know another day another dollar and another nintendo lawsuit this one they've lost but they've had a good track record of having appeals courts flip the decision so nintendo will probably take it there and, and we'll see i mean worst case it looks like worst case for nintendo is they have to pay 10 million dollars which sucks obviously but I guess the Switch is doing well, so they don't have to worry too much about it. But anyway, there you go. Nintendo suit again. Now, connected to that a little bit is my next story. So this this one's been, been piping for a couple weeks, and I want to touch base on it. Uh, because I find it very interesting, because I think a successful system is always a good thing, doesn't matter who you typically root for. Now, at my core, I guess I would have to say I'm a Sony guy. Like, I have my main system is my PlayStation. I've been a PlayStation guy since the PS1, have always been my primary system, Uh, even on the PS3 when it had that really slow start. Uh, But I still believe that the PS4 is the superior console when it comes to the Xbox. Uh, However, obviously, as we found out back in March, a curveball from Nintendo, as always, came out with the Nintendo Switch. And so I want to talk a little bit about the Nintendo Switch sales numbers because they keep getting compared to the PlayStation 4 sales numbers. And I guess that's okay. I still feel like they're different devices. So it's a little strange to me that we compare them. But I do like uh, a few of the parallels that go along with this story. So... Uh, first up uh, is just the straight numbers. So this is fact. This is not fanboyism. This this is just what it is. So when you look at it, uh, the sales we have so far. Uh, now what they did was in this chart I'm looking at. This was the sales of the Switch and the PS4 in their first. 26 weeks on sale so this isn't the switch last week versus the ps4 last week this is the switch its first week out versus the ps4 its first week out and vice versa so this is ps4 sales from three years ago versus switch sales from this year and i think there's an interesting story of to why this is happening um but so this and these are japanese numbers so week one when the switch first launched it sold 329,000 copies or consoles uh, copies of the consoles <laughs> and the ps4 sold 309,000. so the switch outsold the ps4 in its first week compared to the ps4 in japan now uh which is which is quite impressive i think the switch then the next week dropped down to 62,000, and the ps4 was at 65,000. so the ps4 is back at its second week is a little stronger now you could start to argue about restocks and availability of the consoles because that is definitely an issue and i think the ps4 i don't think it had shortages in japan i just don't think it struggled for anything like that i know in the states it was a really well done launch you could find one if you wanted one but it wasn't like they were flooded the stores weren't flooded with them but you could find them pretty much anytime you wanted one uh so then you go down to week three and you've got the switch at forty nine thousand and the ps4 at thirty five thousand. so the switch comes back pretty strong now this next week is interesting and i'm not going to go down the whole thing but you can see kind of a pattern developing here the fourth week seventy eight thousand switch units to PlayStation's 29,000 units. So if you look at the PS4 list, and uh, I don't have it up here for you, but well, maybe I will. Maybe I'll put it in the video. Maybe I won't. I don't know. Depends how lazy I'm being today. <laughs> and the PS4, it starts really strong at 309, goes to 65, 
then 35, 29, 30, and then it just drops off after that. And it starts getting down into uh, single digits, like 7,000, 6,000, 8,000. So, and it stays consistently there, which shows that it came out really strong and it just fell off a cliff and then just slow and steady. Now, the switch has never sold single digits in its first 26 weeks. The lowest week it's ever had, just really quick scan this list, was 22,000 units. And then the week before that, they had 87,000. And the week after, they had 70,000. So that tells you that's more of a shortage issue. So that's really interesting to me because the Switch is coming out of the gate swinging way harder than the PlayStation 4 is. Now, a few reasons for this. Uh, First, I would argue that handhelds always do really well in Japan. So while the Switch isn't a complete dedicated handheld, in fact, it's a little bit bigger, and I think it's hurting some of its quote-unquote handheld credibility uh, in the Japanese market, it is something that is more appealing to people in Japan than a PlayStation 4 would be. Because uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me, unfortunately, but if we look at the first, uh, along these same weeks, if you look at sales of the PlayStation Vita, the Vita, which has been long dead in the US, is still going incredibly strong in Japan. So I'd love to see those numbers compared to PS4. I'll bet you the Vita is outselling the PS4 in a lot of these low weeks. Uh, But anyway, so a handheld is much more appealing to the Japanese crowd. It's how it's always been, and I think it's how it always will be. Um, When I was there, public transportation in Tokyo, incredible. In fact, all the transportation, like the trains to, we went to Kyoto and to Hiroshima. We went to those places. The trains were awesome. You can go to a central train station, buy a ticket, there you know a scheduled ticket set up a trip i mean it was awesome so we did all that and uh but those are the sort of things that a lot of people commute especially in tokyo the trains are like on time like money so you don't need need a car if you live close enough to a train station and you and you know how to and you can get around it which a lot of people commute like that same with going to school things like that. they don't have like public school buses and things like that so they have this great system and a lot of people have a lot of time to do whatever so you see like when we were on the train we saw a lot of people working on their laptops we saw a lot of people playing handhelds like the 3ds and the vita didn't see a lot of switches i remember making that comment but to be fair it had only been out about a month at that point and it being a little bit bigger of a handheld i could see where people initially wouldn't dive into that i mean obviously they have the sales to back it up but maybe it wasn't one of those things they were ready to take on their commute yet they were still easing into the product i guess perhaps um so that's the first kind of thing that you see uh, when you look at the numbers and you think about it now the second one and this is i think the most important part of this argument and this is something that all game console creators need to look at when they release a new console but look at the game library that came out when the switch launched you had legend of zelda now you can argue there weren't a lot of games for the switch There weren't initially at launch, but you know what you had? You had Legend of Zelda. That thing is what we call in the business a system seller. That game will move units. And since the Wii U didn't do very well, there weren't a lot of Wii U units in Japan. So if the Wii U is not doing well, people aren't going to buy that game for the Wii U. They They would rather buy a new console and that game than buy an old console and buy that game for it, which makes total sense, obviously. So you have a powerhouse like Legend of Zelda, which is an incredibly smart move from Nintendo. It's the same thing they did with uh, Twilight Princess when they released it on the GameCube and the Wii. You want to have just an unbelievable title at launch. So when you look then at the PS4 launch library, and I'm just going to do this off the top of my head. I was going to open a Google tab there, but I'm not going to worry about it. Here, Here were your heavy hitters when the system launched. You had Killzone. 
which is a shooter. It's a fine game, I suppose. It's just a shooter. You had Knack, which is a platformer, a fine game, but it's just a platformer. There was no like must-have game. There was no God of War. There was no Uncharted. There was no Last of Us. There was no Bloodborne 2. Like, they're just Bloodborne. I don't know why I said the sequel when the first one hadn't come out yet at the launch. Anything like that. They didn't have anything like that. Uh, at launch so when you have a, a game system come out initially of course it's going to sell like gangbusters right away but there was no staying power because the software wasn't there to back it up as to where in japan you had the one game everybody had to have well if someone's looking at a store and they say well the ps4 i kind of want one there's not really a lot of games for it the switch i'm kind of eh on but zelda looks incredible they're gonna buy the switch and they're gonna get zelda and that it's it's always been about the games and it always will be so i think this is something that Uh, I think Microsoft, because I I say this, like I say I'm a Sony guy, remember, uh, the best launch game between Xbox One and PS4 was on the Xbox One. I hate to say that, but it's true. Like, Dead Rising 3 was the best launch game to come out of both consoles' launch libraries. Again, that's my opinion, but I think it was the best game for me. And so even though I was a PS4 guy and I enjoyed my PS4, I was kind of waiting for the good stuff. And I don't think Infamous came out until February or something after that. So Infamous was a decent game too, but that would have been a great launch title. At least Infamous had some kicking power. It didn't have Legend of Zelda staying power. It didn't have Legend of Zelda oomph. It didn't pack that kind of punch, but it most certainly would have been better than what we got on the launch. And maybe it was intended to be, and it got delayed. It happens often uh, nowadays with the size and, and the scale and the scope of these games and everything. So... Uh, in the in the first 26 weeks, the PlayStation 4 told, uh, sold a total of 665,760 units. That's very incredible. That's in, that's that's a massive success. Uh, go Sony. The Switch in its first 26 weeks sold 1.5 million units. So that's it's it's twice as much. Um, you know, like 2.25 times as much. And that's incredible. I mean, especially for a system that's having shortages. Like there's articles almost every week about retailers having lines of people outside in in Japan looking for a a switch and they can't find it. Now, uh, a lot of the articles I'm reading, a lot of people's comments are saying, you know, oh, well, it doesn't mean it's a better system, yada, yada, yada. That's true. Um, The better system is the one that ultimately ends up having the better library. I still believe that. And obviously Sony in the last three years has made an incredible library. Uh, the PS4 is an unbelievable amount of incredible games, a lot of console exclusives that are must-haves, and that's excellent. The Switch, though, is poised to do the exact same thing, and here's what's important about a good head start. Part of the reason the PS3 had failure and had some issues is because the PlayStation 3 uh, launched, and it was super expensive, and no, not as many people could buy it as wanted it. So then you've got game developers going, well, we've got three, you know, the 360 is doing really well. They've got, you know, 500,000 units sold already. And the PlayStation 4 only sold its initial 250,000 units and it's sold out or it's not selling as quickly. And the Xbox is going up and up every month. Well, if we can make a game for just one studio, we're going to make it for the Xbox 360 because they have more of a, what they call an install base. That means there's more people that own that system than the other. So Microsoft started getting all these and, and uh, to their credit, Microsoft went out and got the, a lot of these exclusives. You know, they went out of their way to find the best games, which is why it's so interesting to me that they flip-flopped in this generation. Microsoft stopped caring about games and making the same mistake Sony made when they focused only on the media side of it. 
but in the 360 days, Microsoft went out, got a bunch of new IPs, secured a ton of exclusives, and it was awesome. And the 360 itself was a huge success. They sold more systems, more companies wanted to make games for them. Companies like Ubisoft that was trying to save money, they would make a game for the 360, then port it to the PS3. And the port was just awful because the cell processor was so different from uh, the, the like try processors that the 360 was using or whatever uh, they were using. And so you had a lot of this stuff going on and the PS3 was the inferior system for a very long time. Now, Sony quickly, thankfully, got their act together and really started putting their 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 best foot forward when it came to the system. And it was all about the games. What made the PS1 successful? Definitely what made the PS2 successful being the most underpowered console of that generation. Counting the Xbox and the GameCube, the PS2 was the weakest of the three power wise. That's why it doesn't matter about power because it's all about the games. Right. And the PS2 killed it. So uh, anyway, getting back to everything, the, the idea is you have to have slow and steady can still win. In fact, in the in the U.S., the 360 just pounded the PS3 for many years. But in the end, of course, worldwide sales, uh, Sony was definitely going to win because the Xbox just has no market share in Japan. Unfortunately, people don't care about it. But worldwide, Sony was definitely beating Xbox. And then by the end of the PS3's life, they had passed 360's lifetime sales. So you can have an abysmal start and still build it into an amazing library not saying the ps4 had an abysmal start it had a it had a great start it just didn't have a great library um, but thankfully you know sony did what was smart and they made a really easy system to make games for you saw a lot of people porting their indie games over just like you're seeing with the switch a lot of people porting indie games over and uh and it made a really strong showing now the other thing connected to that that nintendo's doing that is really, really smart is they have this incredible plan laid out for releasing their AAA games. They have one big game a month and they're sticking to it. I'm quite impressed by this. Like they had uh, now the first one, obviously this was kind of a port, but they had Zelda come out with it. But in the second month they had Mario Kart 8 come out like, okay, well it's Mario Kart. I mean, come on next month you have arms. Then you have, and I might be missing a few, but then you have like Splatoon 2 and then you have uh rabbits. Mario comes out this month next month is mario odyssey so you they they built a roadmap to success by having great games launching consistently it's that easy so it is one of those things that hopefully console makers will learn on launch you have to have that one big game and then you have to have a steady flow of really good games to keep your sales up because the ps4 was definitely guilty of this i I know because i had one it launched And then you didn't see a lot of games. Nothing was really trickling out until almost the next year. Like that next holiday, I think, is when we saw uh, Shadows of Mordor and some of the stuff, which technically was on PS3 as well, but was better on the PS4. So even though those were multi-plats, it was still interesting how, you know, it took them almost a whole year to get their footing when it came to its AAA physical releases. And obviously they had indies coming out too, but Nintendo, while they're doing the same thing, they have those AAA big hitters. So anyway, um, just another, you know, interesting kind of story. A lot of people are arguing that you can't compare the two. I think that's silly. I think you can compare the two and it's, it's a roadmap for looking at why something was successful. There's nothing wrong with that. And because the switch is successful, doesn't mean the PlayStation four isn't. And I think sometimes we have to really check our fanboyism, and we have to show that we're not just, you have to be smarter than that is what I always say. Like us as consumers, we're better than that. We have to be smarter than that. If you don't like the Switch, there's nothing wrong with that. I have both my guys that I work with, my, both my employees, they don't like the Switch. But the reason they don't like the Switch is because they're pissed off about the Wii U. They feel like they got burned by Nintendo. If there's a reason, 
a worse reason in the world than that for not liking a system. It's just because of the blatant fanboyism. If there's a great game on it, play it. You got to have it. You know, and I'm not saying everyone has enough money to get every system when it comes out, but just because you can't have access to something or you don't have access to it, it doesn't mean it's bad. You know, I say this all the time when it comes to music too. If you don't like a band, it doesn't mean they suck. It just means you don't like it. And that doesn't mean that there isn't bad music out there. I'm just saying that every time you don't like something doesn't mean it's necessarily inherently bad. And so it's just, I like us to change our thinking on that, right? Like, let's just, let's be smarter about it, right? Um, but anyway, uh, it was a neat, it was a neat kind of retrospective to kind of look at everything that's been going on. The switch is doing great. I'm very happy for Nintendo on this one. I think it's a great system though. I like mine. I'm just waiting for more games that interest me. Uh, I was very excited to play monster hunter, but now that they announced monster hunter worlds for the PS4, I've just kind of totally forgotten about monster hunter on the switch, but uh yeah so congratulations nintendo the switch is incredible and it's only gaining momentum they're apparently going to have a bunch more ready for stores for this holiday they've they're past their shortages and and the company that was making the chip for apple is making more chips for them now and good on nintendo it doesn't mean sony or micro even microsoft who's who's a, a decent third place when it comes to this quote-unquote console war they're doing fine too you know they have their diehard fan base and uh while i'm not part of that i mean i have an xbox but i never use it uh, it's still good for them and there's there's no when there's this much competition in the market that's a good thing for all of us there's, there's no losers in that uh it's good for all of us so then uh speaking of things that are good for us this is the exact opposite of that this in fact uh well quite frankly this is stupid and this pisses me off so capcom is partnering with I am 8-bit who is, they did do some cool stuff I don't hate them necessarily uh, I've been they had like the no man's sky physical collector's edition and they had uh, they had the physical ps4 version of hyper light drifter so they do get some like cool exclusive physical stuff so as a collector you always want to be checking them out they also do a bunch of like stupid records and and t-shirts and all that garbage too but most recently uh, Capcom and I am 8-bit announced a collection or excuse me, a collaboration where they're making a Street Fighter 2 Super Nintendo cartridge. Yes, a legitimate Street Fighter 2 Super Nintendo cartridge. Uh, it comes. The two colors that are available are opaque Ryu headband red, so it's red. There were 4,500 cartridges of that, or they're doing a special glow-in-the-dark Blanca green, which is a thousand cartridges. The boxes are all identical and will be sealed, so which one you might actually get is random. So, okay, uh, well, let's, there's a whole bunch of stuff I hate about this, so let's start with the first one, since we just talked about it. The color. Okay, you want to do random coloring? That's really dumb and annoying, but fine. You make one 4,500 and one 1,000? That means you're trying to artificially make something rare in the glow-in-the-dark green one, and you're making it random. So people couldn't even order the green one. They're just going to have to hopefully maybe get it. Now, that also is frustrating to people that buy games and might keep them sealed in their collection because, quite frankly, who's buying this to play? No one's buying this to open up the box and put in Street Fighter 2. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're going to go to my store and buy a copy of Street Fighter 2 for $10 and then play that instead of buying this and play and opening it and playing all that. So I guess it's a random box. So you go, I don't know what color it is. It could be red. It could be green. You know, buy this crap. It's random, which I really hate randomness when it comes to things like this, special collectability. Make 5,000 units, do 2,500 green, 2,500 red, see which one sells out first, limit one of each, boom, you're done. People can buy both colors. They can collect both. Who cares? It's over. Make the box all the same. Just have a different sticker. When it says glow in the dark green, you stick the sticker on the box. Boom. You're all done. Everybody knows what game they have. It's that easy. This is like marketing 101, and I'm not even a marketing expert. 
But hey, I'd pretend to be one on TV. All joking aside, that's just the first thing that irritates me. We're just in the first paragraph. Let's move on to the next thing. So this item, uh, how much would you pay for this? So when new Super Nintendo games came out back in the day, they would come out at different prices between $40 and $60. Some would go higher, like Final Fantasy III and Chrono Trigger, I believe, were up as almost high as $75 at some retailers. Um, however... Uh, this game, because it's got the box, um, let's say, what would you expect to pay? 40 50 Like, when I looked at this initially, I would say, okay, if it was $49.99, I, I, that's probably an appropriate price to pay for a new Street Fighter II cartridge. Nope. This uh, is coming packed in for $100. $100 for a uh, remake of a Super Nintendo game. Uh, basically a reproduction of a Super Nintendo game in a cartridge in a box with, I think, a poster? Well, let's see what it comes with here. Uh, it promises the game will be playable. Well, that, this is my... Okay, this is the start of the second paragraph. I am 8-bit promises the games will be playable, <laughs> assuming you have a working Super Nintendo or compatible substitute. So does that mean it won't work in a Retron? Who knows, right? Because some reproductions don't work in Retrons. And will come with a premium instruction booklet as well as a retro as retro pack in surprises the extras may help to justify its $100 price tag i highly doubt that uh let's see okay so this person remembers it selling brand new for $80 in 1992 i don't recall that game ever being $80 but that might be fine i wasn't really buying new games back then anyway i was only 11 years old <laughs> so um yeah you could pre-order it uh, this, this actually came out l early last week is when they announced it. And I remember seeing it and going, Oh, that's cool. And then going, wait a minute, Th this, this is uh, offensive to all of my collecting standards. So one, you've got the randomness two, you've got the stupid expensive price. And then, uh, three, you have the fact that it's only street fighter two. These, uh, <laughs> I don't know how to say this nicely. These, these jerk holes at Capcom, they can't even have the decency to give you the <laughs> Super Street Fighter 2 Turbo. They're giving you the most basic, generic crap version of Street Fighter 2 that exists. Regular Street Fighter 2, not Super Street Fighter 2 Turbo, not Street Fighter 2 Turbo, the new Warriors, the new Challengers, whatever it was. Nope. Nope. Suck it and play the original slow Street Fighter 2 that you didn't really like until they made a better version of it later. So what does that tell you? Does that tell you that they're one and done with this and they'll never make another one? Nope. Uh, it's part of something called the Cartridge Legacy Collection. There's a little stamp on it that says Cartridge Legacy Collection. So let's see what's next. Um, are they going to make a collectible Street Fighter 2 uh, Street Fighter 2 Turbo? And then they're going to do Super Street Fighter 2 Turbo New Challengers? Like, they can do three different versions of this crap? Like, as soon as Capcom starts to redeem themselves, they just become stupid again and it just frustrates me how dumb this is and i know there's collectors out there that want it it's cool i'm not calling you dumb for wanting it it's if you want it and you're willing to pay the price it's fine like i never criticize people who want things i want lots of things that most people that a lot of people may not want and it's fine uh so i'm not criticizing you i just feel like this is the ultimate form of pandering to collectors and this is the ultimate form of abuse when it comes to us like this is them going so far out of their way to just be obnoxious, I think. You know, it just, th this is this is them taking advantage of us. Plain and simple, that's it. They're taking advantage of us as collectors. 
I actually chose not to partake in this one, which is very strange for me. This seems like something that's it's limited numbers. It's a reproduction with a box and everything. This is something I should have jumped all over. I couldn't do it. I, I just looked at this and I said, this is, this is, it just feels like blatant take uh, advantage taking of us consumers. So I passed on it. Now I double checked today and of course it's sold out. Um, it's probably gonna be worth a bunch of money. It was limited to per customer. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. Most stuff on IMA bit doesn't sell out that quickly. I don't know how long it took to sell out. I'm just looking here almost a week later and it is sold out now. So I guess good on them. The other thing too is that they could at any time they want to, they could make more of these. You know, they, they it's, it's like like with limited run games, I like them because they essentially sign a contract saying we're not going to make more than this amount of games and that's it. And a lot of times they require that the company who has them do that for them also is not allowed to have it physically printed in the U.S. anywhere else. So I like that. But I don't like when a, a company just kind of throws this, like, retro, oh, look, cartridges are hot again, and, and just, like, throws this back in your face and, and just kind of says, you know, here, deal with it. Uh, so anyway, it's fine. If you want it, go get it. It's it's fine. It's whatever. I, I personally think it's hot trash, and I think it's a terrible, terrible thing. Uh, and I hope that this is not a pattern, but since there's literally a stamp on it that says cartridge collection, uh, I have no faith uh, in knowing that they aren't going to just milk the hell out of this. So hopefully uh, this is something. You know what? Let, let's do this. Let's On the, on the fly, because I love you guys, on the fly, let's go to eBay. Let's look up the Street Fighter 2 30th Anniversary Edition. All right, here we go. Street Fighter 2 30th Anniversary Collection. Oh, my God. Okay. So, <laughs> Jesus, what is wrong with people? Okay, so this sold for 100 bucks um, on eBay. They're selling the pre-orders already, and a bunch have sold for $200. One apparently sold for 475 yesterday. And if you look at not sold listings, you look at what they're up for. The cheapest one you can get right now is $450. Come on, guys. Come on, people. This is the worst. And these are brand new. So what are you going to do? Open this? You're going to pay $700 for this? Well, $450 is the cheapest one. $700 is the highest one. So you're going to pay $450 for this and then open it? Or are you just going to be like, eh, maybe I got a green one. Maybe I got a red one. Uh, I don't know. This, it's blatant. It's horrible. This now... now We'll have to watch the prices settle because of the sold ones, which also, this is against eBay's policy. You're not allowed to sell pre-orders more than 30 days out, but whatever, I'll go beyond that. Of the ones that have sold, four of the five look like they're all from the same person, and they all sold within a few minutes of each other that day. So if that's the case, most likely someone's trying to build a pattern of what something's worth. I don't know why, but that's what they're doing. So it's fine. I don't know. Buy, buy it if you want. If you ha if you got one, resell it and make money. Good, good for you. I I could care. I could not care any less about this thing that I do now. And that that eBay listing is just the icing on the cake. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's just. Oh man. Eh, there you go. It's being a uh, now now. This is one thing I will say though. This is cool. Uh, after I just got done shitting uh, shitting all over this thing. So here's what I will say. It is being made manufactured by Retrotainment Games. Retrotainment Games, bringing it up here. Retrotainment is awesome. I love these guys. I met these guys at uh, Midwest Gaming Classic in Milwaukee. They're the creators of a game called Haunted Halloween 85 and 86. And they're working on a new game now, uh, which I will give them a little bit of props for. Because I'm not mad at them for this. Uh, it's called Silence the Forest. 
Uh, Full Quiet, it's called. Full Quiet. And uh, so Full Quiet is their new game. They're coming out. Good luck to them. They're great guys. I talked to the actual developers of the game. They released the game on Steam, and they make physical cartridges you can buy, complete in the box. Very happy for them. Clearly, Capcom found them, or they went to Capcom and said, we could do this for you. And but good for them to getting their money. This is obviously another avenue for them where they can help grow their business. Very happy with them. Have The product looks awesome. I'm not upset about that. What I'm upset about is Capcom just cashing in on this nostalgia, like the, the crazy nostalgia we have going on right now. And I guess a lot of other people are Nintendo is with the classic and Super Nintendo is. But a, a Super Nintendo Classic's 80 bucks. It's a console with two controllers and 20 games on it. And this is a cartridge in a box for 100 Ugh, it just ugh, just makes me just irks the hell out of me but anyway yeah go buy it if you want to if you don't don't <laughs> that's all i have to say about street fighter 2 uh okay so uh i got oh man i got so many more here okay i got two more let's see where we're at here time wise okay we're getting through it so there's two more things i want to talk about um this second to last one here is this has been coming up the last couple days. Uh, someone on Twitter brought this up and was really making like a big stink out of it. And I, I kind of tend to agree with some of the things he was saying, but it's also kind of sparked a whole new question. So at Gamescom, which uh, was a couple a month ago, I think, something like that, uh, there was a demo, a playable demo for Cuphead. Now, I've been talking about Cuphead a lot. I cannot wait for this game. I'm super excited for this game. Um and it looks amazing uh so someone from venture beat okay venture beat uh they i don't know their website or something i don't know and then there's a, a fraction that's called games beat and uh one of the guys who works there his name's dean takahashi dean takahashi uh decided to play cuphead at gamescom and wanted to write about his experience so he um he plays cuphead and i'm, I'm watching it literally as i tell you this uh i'm watching cuphead and it takes him one minute and 40 seconds to get over the first jump in the tutorial stage that quite literally tells you how to do it so if i if i'm too lazy and don't put it up on the screen this is what i'm looking at so he's on a little box that says press a to jump for a short jump then there's a, another tool tip that says press y to dash which is a quick evade on the ground or air and then there's a third pillar which is too high to jump over so, God, this makes me cringe. So, for the first 45 seconds now, he's been jumping at the big pillar, trying to jump over it, like 10 times now. And he's jumping, he's dashing into the pillar, and he's like, I don't know why I can't get over this. It's quite obvious that you jump on the first smaller pillar, then you jump and air dash to get over the big pillar. This is what the game's trying to teach you. It has a freaking tutorial that's giving you instructions, and it's taking this guy a minute and a half to get over the first jump. This is mental to me, right? So this isn't really the story. I This is just hilarious to me that this guy has been apparently writing about games and been a game journalist. I put that in quotes every time because I think game journalism is such a freaking irritating way to talk about it. And if someone's about to say, well, Greg, aren't you a games journalist? You've got a YouTube channel and you talk about... I am not a games journalist. I am a games opinionist. So I'm just here spouting my incoherent ramblings about my opinions on the game market and the game uh, development uh, side of things. So if you uh, don't agree with me, that's cool because it's an opinion. I don't do what journalists do, which are supposed to be talk about facts and uh, break news and have sources and all that sort of crap. I don't do that. I have opinions and I give you my opinions. So anyway, this uh, <laughs> this guy is just um, 
Oh my God, it's so painful. So there's this thing called a parry slap where you're supposed to jump in the air, you slap, and then you can jump again kind of off of that, or you use the momentum to get over another jump. And he's just sitting here. He can't even jump and hit something at the same time. It's just like, I just want to choke him out. It's just, ah, it's just making me crazy. Hey, you know what's okay though? People suck at games. That's fine. A lot of people suck at games, but they can still enjoy them, and that's fine. Uh, but lately what's been kind of brought up here is the question, do game journalists need to be good at games to properly review them? And so I first heard that question in my head. I was like, you know, that might be fair. Like, like should game journalists have to be really good at a game? Should they have to finish a game to be able to write about the experience they had with that game? And quite simply, the answer to that question is no. A game journalist does not have to beat a game. They don't have to be good at a game, but they can only then talk about the things that they're familiar with. So for instance, oh my God, this Cuphead game looks just incredible. <laughs> it's just, it's got an overworld map like Super Mario World. Oh my God, I'm going to play this game so bad. Um, anyway, so if if they're writing about games, they just have to, un- they, ha- they have to be the professional. They have to be the, the, cr- the critic's and, and they have to be self-aware so that they know that he, if he's having a hard time, if this game's hard, he can't come out later and say, well, the controls kind of suck in this game. Like I couldn't even get over the first jump in the first minute and a half. That's not the game's fault. That's your own ineptitude. So as long as you can recognize your own shortcomings and you're honest about that, cool. Now, the video I'm watching, to be fair, is on the Venture Beat YouTube channel, and it's titled Cuphead Gamescom Demo, Dean's Shameful 26 Minutes of Gameplay. Now, I don't know if they changed the name of this. It has 5,000 downvotes, though, so like the Internet Brigade uh, Brigade has just come after this one. But it, it's there's nothing wrong with him being bad at this game. You know, like, like it's, it's perfectly acceptable. And, and he's very bad too. Like, like he's, it took him apparently like 10 minutes to figure out that you can't jump on enemies heads like Mario. You know what I mean? Like, it's so stupid. It's, it's, it's a shooter, dude. Just shoot them. You have a gun. Why would you jump on someone's head when you have a gun? Okay. Anyway, I'm getting, I'm getting sidetracked because I'm actually watching this while I rant about this. And it's just like, I'm losing my mind at how bad he is at this, but that's okay. That's not the argument here. The argument is, should he be allowed to review this game based off of him being quite frankly, just suck ass at this game? My answer to that is again, yes, he's more than allowed to review this game. But he has a responsibility if he wants to call himself a game journalist, and he's been doing this for 18 years, so let's just safely assume he takes pride in what he does and that he's a professional. <laughs> he just tried to jump on another enemy's head. He got killed like 10 times doing it. So let's say <laughs> that he's a professional and he knows what he's doing. So as long as he can review the game and say, wow, this game's hard. I was not good at it, but it was. It looked amazing. The controls were spot on. It's really hard. You know, my, my thing about reviews has always been a review should never be, and this is, of course, oh my God, he just died to the same enemy like three times in a row. So my idea of what this game should be, a game review should be, it should not be, it's subjective, right? So obviously if he says this game's a 7 out of 10, which he's not what he said, but I'm just saying if he if he did say like, oh, this game's a 7 out of 10, that's subjective. It might be 7 out of 10 to him, it might be 10 out of 10 to me, it might be 1 out of 10 to one of you. And that's okay too because that's our opinion. Um, but I never felt like game reviews should be so opinion-based. Like when I review a game, oh my God, he just died a fourth time to the same guy. Okay, um, my opinion of a review should be the fact that it's not your opinion necessarily of what the game is but why don't you tell it who the, why don't you try to explain who the game is going to appeal to now maybe that's my background in working retail and my job for the last 
I'm going to do a quick math in my head. 17 years has been to find the best game for a customer. Like if a customer comes in and says, oh man, I really want to get Superman 64. I don't go, oh God, that game sucks. Don't buy it. I say, well, here's what the game's like. A lot of people don't like it, but here's what you do in the game. Some people buy it because it's really bad and they just want to experience a bad game. And some people buy it because they're just huge Superman fans. If you're neither, I would maybe think about getting this game instead. And I listen to what they say to me and I say, well, here's the game you should buy. What I feel is missing in game reviews is them explaining to us who would like this game. Don't just tell us if you liked it because then we have to decide if we're like you. Just tell us who you think would like it. And that's a little bit more difficult to do. Like I said, for me, I've done that over the last 17 years of, of working video game retail and helping people find games. But, you know, it just that's to me always what a review should be. It should be you trying to figure out who this game is for, not you just trying to say, eh, this game sucks or this game's good. Now, again, I'm that's my definition of a review. Clearly, that's not what a lot of people do. A lot of people, you know, everywhere you go, it's numbers. It's it's like, oh, this game's a five out of 10. Well, first of all, let's just, a couple things about number review systems that really piss me off. So the first one, I'm gonna, I'm gonna rip on Game Informer here a little bit because Game Informer has a 10 scale system, but because they're owned by GameStop, they're not usually allowed to take a huge steaming dump on most games. Most games have to get at least a seven. Um, now they, they don't come out and clearly say that. And it seems like once every three months, they're allowed to just really crap on a game. <laughs> he finally got his air dash working. Good job, buddy. Good job, Dean. Uh, and so they have a rating system out of 10. But so how they got around that then was any game that gets a seven is basically average and anything below a seven is crap. So why would you have a 10 point rating system when, when, when anything below a seven is crap? So that's more of like a, a school grading system where it's like A, B, C, D is passing and F is fail. Then C, is C really average at that point? I mean, not really, because D is pretty much considered a failure too. You know, like it's not a success. So is C average? Mm, not really. Uh, you'd argue more that B would be average because A is good, C is the bottom you'd want to be at, and that's basically the same kind of system the Game Informer uses. So that's, that's annoying to me. And then you've got things that try to say, well, you know, let's break it up. So graphics are A, music's a B, uh, gameplay was a D because I couldn't get past this level or what, whatever, you know? And, like, that just makes no sense to me. And, and plus, when you have a big system like that, like, I don't remember which one does it. They do, like, out of 100 rating system. Like, this game got an 86 out of 100. What in the hell is the difference between, oh my God, he just ducked and got hit by the same ball 10 times. This guy is is awful at this game. Anyway, I digress once again. We go back to what's the difference between an 86 and an 85? Why do you, what, what, you know, like, so you would give one game an 86 and one an 85. Like if there was some sort of mathematical equation figured out with that, where you have five different categories out of 20 and you give each one like a 20 out of 20, that's how a game gets 100. If you give each one a 10 out of 20, the game gets a 50. So it's, you know, I mean, like, okay, that makes sense. But that's not what they do. They just, like, go off this gut feeling. It's like, well, I really liked this game, and I gave it an 85, and I liked this game a little bit less, so I gave it an 80. What? What? And so then it's up to us as consumers to say, well, this guy's an idiot, so I'm not going to listen to any of his reviews. Uh, and this guy uh, is really smart because he agrees with me. But now here's the flipping bad side about that, right? So then you start only listening to people that agree with you. How do you get introduced to new things and how do you try new? Oh my God, he got hit by another one. Um, how do how do you find new and interesting things that you might enjoy outside of your bubble if you never 
Go outside your bubble. It's the same thing with like the current debate on politics and stuff. If you only read the things that you want to hear, how are you going to open yourself up to new possibilities and new views and new uh, experiences? You can't. You can't. And that's what's frustrating about this. So, so we start to only listen to the reviewers that like what we like. And then on a, on a deeper level, if you don't like a game, but you're, you, he does, you'll look at yourself and be like, well, what's wrong with me? Like, I wonder if I should play it again. Maybe I should put some more time into that crappy game because Dean Takahashi said it was pretty good. He was pretty good. Anyway, Cuphead's going to be incredible. This is not a, a, shot, a shot at them at all. I cannot freaking wait to play this game. I am so excited for it. I will definitely do a first 30 on this game and probably do just uh, subsequent streams after. Um, well, he keeps getting further. Like every time he dies, he gets like two seconds further. It's, it's incredible that he just keeps going too. Like, I can't believe he, he punished himself for 26 minutes of this, but, um, yeah. So, you know, the other, the other thing too, is when people put labels on things because they're lazy. Now, if a, if a, well, one of my big ones, if you've listened to this podcast for a while, you know, one term I hate is the term Metroidvania. Now, as a consumer, right, if you guys are trying to describe a game to a friend, you said it's 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 a Metroidvania. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I don't I don't think there's anything wrong with that at all because you're using one. It's becoming an industry standard, which is disgusting. But it, it's 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 what people use to describe it. And you're uh, you're a procurer and, and a casual and a enjoyer of that item. What really bothers me is when a game journalist like this guy, although I don't know if he's ever said it, will come out and say, oh, this is the hottest Metroidvania out there. Uh, it's, it's, it, 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 come on, you're a journalist. You can't be more descriptive and creative in your words. You know, and, and that's so somebody who's been in the industry that long should be able to do that. Don't know if this guy ever has. I'm not saying he hasn't. But that's what bothers me about that term. So the same thing then can kind of be said for this new trend, which is whenever a game is hard, it's the dark souls of something. <laughs> so he claims that Cuphead is the dark souls of platformers and 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 uh, all this other bullcrap. You know, like be original. You're a game journalist for 18 years. You can't find a better way to describe something than saying it's the it's the hard game version of this genre. You know, like and Dark Souls isn't even that hard of a game. Like it's notorious for its difficulty, but it's not that hard. I mean, when you understand how the game works. I mean, you have infinite lives. It's not like it's not like trying to beat Contra with one life where, you know, any any moment some random thing could happen and screw you up. Like in Dark Souls, the worst that happens is you die and you die again, you lose your souls. Okay, we well just kill a bunch more enemies and you get your souls back. It's fine. Dark Souls teaches you real world experience. As soon as you learn how the game's played, you start cooking right through it. Watch the speedrunners. They're incredible. But anyway, so that was just a, a little annoying add-on to what he was saying about this. Like calling it the Dark Souls of anything, calling anything the Dark Souls of anything is lazy. And so if you're going to be a, a game journalist of 18 years, I expect you to be a little more descript. Oh my God, please. Okay, he didn't. Oh my God, this, I got to turn this off. I'm getting so distracted by how God awful he is. So I made it 13 minutes in. Why don't we have the, uh, a Cuphead demo um, challenge uh, and uh, see how long you can watch this video before you just want to um, grab a controller, bash this guy in the face with it. No, don't do that. No violence. Um, you want to grab his controller and take over the game for him and, and get him through the level. How about that makes more sense? Oh, Cuphead. Game's going to be incredible. This guy's awful. Uh, I'd also, I, but again, it goes back to, I don't necessarily believe he, he deserves any sort of like hatred and internet hate that he's getting. Like, I don't, I don't, believe in that i don't believe in the harassment side of that like we have to be better than that again i'll say that a lot in these podcasts and videos like we have to be better than that but he has a personal responsibility so he's allowed to be crappy getting back to the original question he's allowed to be crappy 
at video games if he understands that he needs to pull himself out of that. One thing I always told myself, and I don't, this doesn't happen to me a lot, but it has happened to me before, is uh, I get, I've gotten a few free copies of games before to do reviews on. Not so much in my new channel now, but back in the day when I was doing my old Brothers Insanity stuff. And when I used to do that one, um, I, we got a couple free copies of games that I felt like I could not tell you if a game was worth your money if I didn't pay for it. All the first 30s I do, I buy every one of those games. Cuphead, I will buy, and I will give you my honest opinion on it based on me buying it. Because I I have a problem with being subjective. Now, I'm not saying that 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 no one can be subjective. In fact, my fiance and I had an argument about this because she feels like she could get stuff for free and still be objective about it. Uh, me personally, I can't. So that's why I choose not to get free stuff. I mean, I not that I choose not to get free stuff. People don't give me free stuff yet. Um, but I don't want it. Like I wouldn't do a review. If someone gave me a free copy of the game, I wouldn't do a review on that game because it's not genuine. It's not fair because I know my limitations when it comes to being objective and subjective. So as long as this guy knows that if, if he can, if he can separate that, his suckiness at this game from the quality of said game, then he's a good professional and he should be respected for that. I truly believe that. It, he's sucking at a game is nothing wrong with that. I mean, plus he's been doing game drills for 18 years, so he's probably old. And old people like us, we have like worse reflexes and stuff. So just cut us a break. You know, that's all I'm saying. We're old. Cut us a break. Uh, anyway, he seemed to handle it pretty professionally. He did come out with a, uh, a statement where he talked about, um, let's see here. I'll get the exact quote. So he said, uh, this is kind of a long one, so bear with me. Uh, I've watched the comments on this thread just to see how mean they would be. I think it's useful to show my gameplay experience. I did not intentionally play poorly to troll anyone, but it serves as an interesting social experiment. I walk into a game cold, and this is the play that results. This video shows it's a notch more difficult than your typical Mario game. In fact, if you're expecting Mario as the story says, then you are thrown off. I don't remember any story saying this is like Mario, but that's fine. Anyway, going back to the quote. And it shows that the developers are going to leave a lot of people who are worse than me behind. Maybe they're fine with that. Maybe they want to target gamers with a love for difficult games. That's also fine. But I think they should signal that. How many games actually come with a tutorial these days? They're not popular, but if it's necessary, that's a signal that this is going to require some skill. So now he's actually criticizing the game developers for putting a putting a tutorial in there, but the tutorial is literally one like if if you if you're a normal game player, I think you would get through that tutorial in about 15 seconds. It took him a minute and a half. So he's not just like your quote-unquote average gamer like there's something like he's just not he doesn't understand it or he wasn't he was trying to ignore the tutorials or something was going on maybe he was distracted maybe it was really loud Who knows i don't know i don't know but he sucked that's all that we know for a fact because we have it on video uh anyway going back to the quote um as for other comments in this thread i wonder why they are hostile to someone who is viewing the game as a beginner are we that intolerant of people who are not quote-unquote gamers should i have played the scene over and over again until i was good at it and then turned the recording on like so many of those perfect video walkthroughs you see i believe that games can be made accessible and inviting to people who are not hardcore fans and these people can be accommodated inside the same game that is appealing to hardcore fans through difficulty levels so when people tell me that i shouldn't be playing this game because of my first play i was pretty lousy that's an attitude that argues that games should be shut off in their own little corner only played publicly by the masters and the experts i disagree with that view entirely and i believe it leads to an elitist attitude that allows gamers to look down on other people and that only leads to a more fragmented world of haters end quotes so eh, eh. okay this is the same argument that people make with dark souls not every game has to be made accessible to everyone I'm not saying it's not a good marketing thing to make your game loved and playable by all something like akin to Minecraft, which is simple for like two year olds and then can still be a lot of fun and challenging for for me. But 
he's he's saying that every game should have difficulty levels so that someone who's not good at games can still play through it and enjoy it now that's another argument maybe to be had another day me personally i think it's up to the developers to craft our experience so if they're crafting our experience and they wanted only the people who could get through a difficult game to get through it then that's what they wanted and we have to respect their vision of their game it's not like i would i, I went to i started actually this is funny because I, I started listening to the stephen king it audiobook and it's not like uh, I started reading it. Let's say I was reading the book and I'm like, you know what? I really wish it had a easy version where it had like simpler words. And I wish that it was, you know, I just wish it was a little easier for someone like me who doesn't read a lot and who's kind of dumb because I don't understand a lot of big words. Like why can't there be an easy mode for the it novel? You can't do that. They're crafting an experience for you. That book is crafting an experience for you. Now, obviously that's a little of a ridiculous example because you can't change stuff like that on the fly. Uh, not that you can change games on the fly, but you can adjust and patch a game to add things like that later. And who knows? Maybe they are. Maybe it's just they couldn't get it out. This game's been delayed forever. Maybe they're just trying to get the damn thing out and they can move on. But uh, it's one of those things that this guy seems like he's making an excuse that that almost like he's being picked on and that, uh, well, this is what happens. You know, gamers, they, they're elitists and they, and they act like this and they, we're not all like that especially good gamers we're not all like that are there elitists absolutely there's elitists in truck collecting clubs there's elitists in badminton tournaments probably i don't know but there's definitely elitists in gaming and that's fine especially in game collecting i've noticed you have a lot of people that come in with a very like well my collection's better because i do this and you collect that so that's really stupid well no it's not the amazing thing about game collecting is that you collect what you want you're picking it. Like I look at my game collection and all my NES, Super Nintendo, and Genesis games are complete 100% mint in the box. Well, I love that. But that doesn't mean that the guy that has 200 loose cartridges is any worse than I am. I mean, my stuff might be worth more money, but what is, is that your indicator of your collection? Like not to me, my collection is personal to me and that's what's special about it. Right. You know, anyway, I don't know. so he, he got a little salty. He threw some back. I think he's wrong about talking uh, about this game needing an easy mode. So it's more accessible to people. I think we need to respect the creator's vision on this. And, uh, I do. And I think that, uh, hopefully he does too. But again, there's nothing wrong with him sucking at games as long as he doesn't come out with a review and give it a bad score because it's too difficult. If that comes out, then he's going to, which he won't do because he's not stupid. That would just blow the doors off of anything this guy says. But anyway, it actually gets worse in my next story. So moving on after that, let's close these stupid windows down here. All right. So the last story I want to talk about, ugh, this one hurts. This one's annoying. So it's been an up and down ride for Shadows of War the new Lord of the Rings game coming out from Monolith. I love Shadows of Mordor, and I was so excited for Shadow of War, and they announced it, like, earlier this year, and it was coming out this year, so I'm like, holy crap, like, we're getting it, like, the same year. We don't have to wait 200 years. And, uh, oh, this is awesome. So there's a, there's a new update about this story, but initially here's what happened. So uh, September 1st, this story came out, which is, I think, kind of a touching story. So there was a um, executive producer at Monolith called Michael Forgay. I hope I'm getting that name pronounced right. If I'm not, I apologize. Uh, He died, unfortunately, from a brain tumor last year when he was just 43 years old. And apparently he was very well loved. He was married with three children. He was a music enthusiast who played in a band made up of other staff members at Monolith. And they were called the Orc Slayers, which is awesome. Um, uh, The... uh, 
so he he was loved by all of his his friends and he everyone enjoyed him as a producer and and every, he was just like a, a big jolly like happy smiley fun guy to be around and he very much apparently helped on the development of the game if something wasn't working he could come in and he could help you know put people together and get it working he was a big deal is what i'm trying to get at there so they have this story come out and and then on the first of september they released this news that they're going to have him be put into the game which is amazing like i love that sort of stuff world of warcraft did it early on they had someone who was part of the development team they made him like this kind of like floating angel character on top of a hill like they immortalized him in this game and they've done it with other people too uh which which i find is the ultimate like the ultimate honor i guess you would say is people loved you so much that they wanted to do this for you you know uh and then somehow warner brothers who part of the ups and downs of of this game in general is if you remember they started talking about all this mental dlc they were doing and they have the whole random loot crate stuff which i hate and it's a paid 60 dollars game but then you also have random loot and pay to win crates and you can unlock extra characters even in the game through those crates it's like what the hell is this like i already paid 60 bucks for the game and now i have to buy keys to like randomly open loot it's, it's just crap so that's what's kind of been happening with this so then this story comes you're like okay well at least like it shows that people on the team care is okay. Like I'm up and down on this game. Like it's a rocky roller coaster, but fine. But then they announced that the DLC is going to be a $5 DLC, $5 us, $5 us dollars to buy a DLC called Fort hog, the orc slayer. So they immortalized him in the game and they made him kind of like the wanderer in fallout where he'll randomly show up and just like kill an orc for you. Awesome. I mean, everything up to this point in the story is awesome right here. Like, like this is all good stuff. The $5, I'm kind of turned off by it initially. Like, you start to feel like, well, are they just, are they doing this to make money off of a guy that died? Like, how awful is that? Like, it sounds really bad initially. And then you look a little bit further down, and of the $5, $3.50 of all of that is getting donated to the family. That's incredible. Uh, that's, it's incredibly incredible. In fact, um, that they would go out and do that. However, you also start to look, well, $3 and 50 cents of the five, like, what is that? So you could argue that that's maybe what it costs to, that's the cut that steam gets and PlayStation gets and Xbox gets. They don't want to be out that money. Okay. Then why didn't you just make it free? And then for every download, you donate like three dollars to the family or something you know because part of them making it a dlc with partial donations is that it makes it in certain states uh, first of all only right now only in the united states is any of the money that's collected going to the family only in the united states which most likely is a legal thing like i don't believe that they're trying to make money off this guy's death i truly believe that i know they're not stupid enough to do that although we see stupid things they're not stupid enough to do that however they weren't smart enough to see that if they if they do it the way they're doing it, it limits how, how people can do it. So the, it's still a $5 US or four euros in, is it euro or pounds? I don't know. It doesn't matter. <laughs> in, 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 in Europe, but none of that money gets donated to the family. So there they're just collecting all the money, you know, for themselves i mean they are they're they're making money off this guy dying that's unbelievable now i love the fact they set up you know the idea that in the united states the money's gonna go to the family that's huge 
This was so poorly done though. Like why did it have to be DLC? Why did you have to buy it? It's almost like they're conditioning us that if we want to help people, we have to buy things from them and then they'll help people. Why didn't you just say everybody who donate, everyone who downloads this DLC, here's a link to a donate. If you donate money, we will match every donation that goes out. Corporate charity donations are tax deductible. So that's a great way that companies do great PR and also have, I mean, it's tax deductible. It doesn't cost them anything essentially. So it's just crazy, 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 crazy to me that this is how this is all going down. Now, uh, there is an update, which I have not read this yet. So I'm going to read this live. This is an update that came out today. Um, Warner Brothers has issued a statement on the Orc Slayer DLC insisting the company is not profiting from sales of it. Neither Warner Brothers nor Monolith Productions will profit from any sales of the Fort Hog DLC regardless of the territory in which the DLC is sold, Warner Brothers said. That's all they said. Uh, okay, because the other problem is that not only is it just not the United States that's allowed to, inside the United States, there is a list of states that are exempt from this. So if you buy it and you live in that state, they won't get any of the money from that. So I don't understand like who at who at Warner Brothers did not see this train wreck a mile down the road. This is the worst PR move you could have done and it's blown up on the internet. I'm talking about it, which means it's got to be important. I only talk about the big stuff. <laughs> but um I I just it's frustrating because originally everyone was like, "Oh, money's going to charity." Yeah, I'd buy DLC if the money goes to charity, of course. Who wouldn't do that? We're not monsters. And then they trash the idea by only donating part of it. So again, we can we can argue that the of a five dollar DLC, a dollar fifty must have to go to Steam, PS4, whatever. There's a percentage of it that goes there. I mean, it must be. Um, but man, I mean, what a horrible story. First of all, this guy passed away, which is the worst part about this. His family, they're trying to raise money for his family. This is a place he worked at. He was beloved by his coworkers. Here's what I think happened. I truly believe this. I think they wanted to immortalize him in the game. They put him in the game, they worked it out, they made the model, and that someone at Warner Brothers said, hey, we can get good PR on this, let's sell it as DLC, but donate all the money to charity. And so, so like, that's, that's, that's like guy number one, and then guy number two in the boardroom is like, hey, that's a pretty good idea, you know, let's check out the legalities of it all, and they look into it all, and they're just like, well, we can't, you know, because they have a disclaimer on the site saying, uh, only money collected in the United States, minus these, like, six or seven states, well, you know, they don't get it. But how, how are they not profiting off of that then? They are profiting off of every sale that exists outside the United States and every sale that exists in the states that are exempt. I, I wish I had the list. I know Mississippi's one of them. I, it's, and again, it, doesn't, it, it has to do with how those states handle selling thing with partial donations of charity. You probably have to register yourself or you have to sign up to be like a charity or, si- or set up a charity organization to handle the donation. Probably too much work, according to them. They could just sell it and just exempt those states. You know, almost like we talked about earlier with the, with Nintendo's lawsuit, like they, I'm sure they've got a, a smart dude or a smart girl thinking up this, this scheme in some, in some office somewhere going, well, if we do this, we'll make this much money. If we exclude these States, we'll make less money, but then we don't have to worry about donating. Or if we have to register all this stuff, it's more headache and it costs more money than just exempting the States. So it's a, it's a scale formula and whichever one scales as being cheaper and less of a hassle, that's the one they do. So beyond the fact that Warner Brothers just turned this game into a crap fest of garbage DLC, they then continue the process with one of their co-workers who lost his life 
And then, and again, I don't generally think they did this to make money. I just think that he, they, the, whoever this was, I always say he is as a generalization to them. So excuse that I'm not uh, being like gender insensitive there, but whoever they are, they just didn't put the thought into it to understand what a debacle this is. So that is also something that I always find incredibly interesting is just like with the Nintendo lawsuit, how are people working at these companies? Not who, who didn't stop this? Was there anybody in the development team who said, this is not going to look good for us? Is there anybody in the marketing team or in the PR team or in the board of the member of board of uh, whatever? How did none of these people, anyone stand up and say, this is really tasteless? Let's just do a thing where we give the download for free and everyone who downloads it will donate like a dollar or something, you know, because that would, you know, this now again, part of it's because they want, they don't want to do the donation. They want the customers to do the donation, but why couldn't you do something like in the game? You could buy, I don't know, like you could do something like, like set up ways for, for people to donate or when you buy the game or something, you know, like, like when you buy, maybe sell the game. I don't, I don't know. You know, I don't have the right answer, so I'm not going to throw these things out there, but there, there's a better way to do it. I think than this, I don't understand why, why Warner brothers, who's just a huge company with just buttloads of money, why they couldn't just say for every DLC sold in the first, like for every DLC downloaded, we'll give it away for free. If you download it, we'll donate a dollar for every download. It gets a million downloads. We just download it. Maybe, maybe that's why they couldn't do it. Maybe they could say, we'll, we'll match every donation up to $5 or something, you know, it's just, there were so many better ways to do this. And like when you're dealing with charity and you're dealing with a sensitive subject like this, you're tugging on people's heartstrings. You have to be prepared when you tug on the wrong one. Like they're going to like lash back at you. It's going to be bad. And this, this is about as bad as it gets. And, uh, all these comments in this article, I'm trying to read and like, they're all from the four days ago. Like none of them have, have changed since the initial update to the article. But anyway, um, Jimquisition did a video on this. Jim's video is really good. I recommend you checking that out because there's a similar story with another game that came out where a couple had lost their baby and they made a game, basically like an emotional game through their journey of, of what happened with their losing their child. And people jumped on them because they felt like they were profiting off of their baby's death. And it's like, well, that's a little different when you've got the two people that actually went through it doing this. This is essentially an idea. I guarantee that his friends and the people that loved and cared about him came up with this idea wanted to put him in the game, immortalize him somehow. And some executive was like, we can, we can do this better. And then didn't, and they screwed the pooch on it. That's incredibly sad to me. Incredibly sad. Um, that, that, it, and it's a charity thing. You know, you can't even get charity right for God's sake. I mean, it's ridiculous. And the people that are, you know, the people that work on the game, you can tell that like, they're probably just shaking their head at this. And, and you don't know if this is going to affect the, the game. I don't know. It's just, it just makes me cringe a little bit, you know, it makes me feel a little off. And uh, that's pretty much the show for today, guys. Uh, as always, I appreciate you listening. Um, my game recommendation for today, um, let's see. You know what? I'm going to go with the classic. If you haven't played this already, I'm, I feel bad for you because it's such an amazing game. For the Super Nintendo, Super Metroid. And I know a lot of people are thinking, oh, my God, who hasn't played Super Metroid? I know, right? I've talked to a lot of people that have never played Super Metroid, and it makes me very sad because it is one of the best games of all time. It's, it's in my top ten list of must have games like it's up there that and castlevania symphony are two of my favorites of all time and uh super metroid just hit all the right notes the music's incredible it's brooding there's this level of exploration that you have to go around you you obviously get item upgrades that let you get to different areas just like the original metroid just like castlevania symphony of the night and you're going through and you're doing all this stuff and it just it's the it's the height of what 16-bit pixels could be looks incredible the music the bosses were bigger and badder than ever 
and it was just just awesome. And there's a little bit of nostalgia where you uh, have to go back through uh, a part that like you actually go down from the because you go back to the planet you're on in the first Metroid and you actually go through the area where you fought Mother Brain and you and you killed Mother Brain and you go through like the glass case like you were escaping like just super cool. Uh, there's just these really great memories. The game starts off incredible. You, you go to a, a lab and they they were basically, they were studying a Metroid. And so you, um, you, you go there to see what's happening cause you get like a distress call and then uh, Ridley breaks in and steals the Metroid from you and you have to fight Ridley, but you can't beat him. It's so, like you shoot him until you die and then it, he takes off and, oh, it's just, just an awesome game. So if you haven't played it, uh, play it. If you've already played it, play it again for crying out loud. It's amazing. As always, everybody, uh, I, I appreciate everyone for listening. This is uh, Game Talk Radio. You can follow me on Twitter at DropRateGreg. Same account as before. I just changed the name to make it a little easier to get to. Bros and Sandy was tough. So at DropRateGreg. Follow me on Twitter. And if you could subscribe to the DropRate on YouTube, that helps us out a lot. We're really trying to grow that channel, and, and we're putting most of our content up there now. And uh, I'm on iTunes, so if you're hearing this on YouTube or through some other channel, you can subscribe to us on iTunes as well. And, of course, on SoundCloud, that's where we're hosted. And hopefully they don't go out of business, so I can keep hosting them there. And as always, everybody, thank you very much, and have a great day.